delighted that you've made it your decision to be here this morning. With the cold weather and the holiday upon us, many would choose not to be among us, but we have a good number present. Looks like our normal crowd, if not a little larger. And I appreciate the fact you've made it a priority to be here this morning. Tonight in 5.30, we're going to be looking at a psalm and making some particular points from that psalm, but I encourage you to read the 14th psalm. The 14th psalm, Psalm 14. It only has seven verses, but if you were to read those through two or three times before the study tonight, then when we analyze the psalm, your study will be enhanced. So you might be looking at Psalm 14. And if you have extra time, then jump over to Psalm 53 and read Psalm 53. And it may look a little familiar to you after you've read Psalm 14. So we'll look at those psalms this evening, Psalm 14 primarily this evening. I encourage you now to open to Acts the 20th chapter. Acts chapter 20, put a marker or finger there. We're going to be looking at some things in Acts chapter 20. There are some meetings, and I'm talking about getting together with people, not just gospel meetings, though they would be included. Some meetings are notable meetings. And to get the point across, let me just ask the question, have you ever been a part of a meeting of people, whether it's a small group that gets together or a large group, whether it was spiritual in nature or social in nature, have you ever been a part of a meeting of people that that particular meeting was remembered for years and years because it was really special? You probably have. Have you ever been in a meeting that stands out more than any other meeting like that? Maybe it was a gospel meeting. Do you ever remember some gospel meeting that stands out more than any other meetings that we've had? Have you ever been in a social setting? Maybe it's something you do every year and, and that particular year though you remember more than any other time. It's a very notable meeting. Let's give some specific application. Is there one assembly of the saint that stands out more than others? You remember one particular Sunday, or maybe it was a Wednesday evening Bible study. There's one particular time that really stands out. That one was really notable. All of them are important, but that one I remember. I'll never forget that one. Have you ever met with some elders? Maybe you met with some elders and, and you've met with them a number of times and you've talked with them, but this particular time you met with elders, for some reason, that stands out and you'll never forget that. Through the years I've met with elders, and but there's some particular meetings I'll never forget. I'll remember that one to the day I die. It's special. Well, you're open to Acts 20 now, and in Acts 20, there are two notable meetings that are unforgettable, particularly if you'd been in that, either one of these meetings. In Acts chapter 20, there is a meeting that was a Sunday worship service. And if you'd been there, you'd never forget the events of that. There was a man in the window, fell asleep, fell out, and he died. I've been in services where people have fainted, or maybe they've, they've passed out, or they had to call an ambulance. But I've never when one fell out of a window and died. I think I'd remember that one for years and years and years. There's another meeting there, and this is a meeting with elders, where Paul met with the elders of the church at Ephesus. And if I'd have been there, I think I would remember that for years and years, because this was the last time they were going to see each other. And their parting words had to be moving and emotional. 
Those are two notable meetings. Now, while you're open to Acts 20, let's get the setting and what's going on and the timing of all of this. Acts 18 to 21 is Paul's third missionary journey. Acts 20 obviously fits right in the middle of that. So this is Paul's third missionary journey. This is just following Acts 19. What happened in Acts 19? Well, there was this uproar at Ephesus, you remember. Now, having accomplished that, or that being, that's finished, in Acts chapter 18 or, or uh, 20, we pick up now at Ephesus here. And there is a journey from Ephesus up to Troas. So we begin at verse, we're not going to read all of the chapter, we're going to focus on two sections, but I want to get the bearing. The text says that he departed to go to Macedonia. And the text at this point doesn't tell us information that we have, that we piece together from 2 Corinthians. From 2 Corinthians, it's at this point he left Ephesus and went to Troas waiting for Titus to get a report of how the first Corinthian letter was received. Titus didn't show. So he goes on to Philippi, and Titus joins him there. And so that's going on right in the middle of all this. He's anxious to find out what's going on. Then he makes his way on into Macedonia, and the text says here in Acts 20, he went on into Greece. Now, down about verse 3, the text says he decided then to return through Macedonia. Now he's ready to go back, go back home. And so he makes his way from there, and he goes back through Macedonia, and he comes to Troas. And we're going to talk about Troas, and one of our focal points is this Sunday meeting at Troas, the disciples assembled together on the first day of the week, the text tells us. Now, we learned several things from that. We're going to focus on that, but that's the first notable meeting we're going to talk about. The text says he left Troas the next day after he had preached, and he made his way to Miletus, little island of Miletus. Now, he makes his way down to Miletus. And he calls, because he's in a hurry, and he doesn't have time to go to Ephesus, he calls for the elders of the church to come down and meet him at Miletus, and he has a meeting with those elders, and he talks to them and gives them some exhortation and some warning. And that is a notable meeting. That's the two notable meetings we're talking about. So open your Bibles to Acts 20. If you're not already there, we're going to look at two notable meetings. Here's the first. The first one is a meeting of the disciples at Troas, found in verses 6 to 12. The second is a meeting with the elders found in 17 to 38. And so we're going to focus on those two notable meetings and what we learn from that. Not just looking from a historical standpoint. They had a meeting at Troas. He met with the elders. But what do we learn from that? What do I, what do I get out of that? How does that apply to my life? How can I be a better Christian looking at these two notable meetings? So here's the first meeting. Let's start at verse 6 now and look at this meeting, this notable meeting, starting in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 20, and in verse 6. Let's start at verse 6. They made their way to Troas. The text tells us, tells us now begin at verse 6, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, uh, where, where we stayed seven days. Now, Verse 6 is very important. We're going to start at verse 6 in a moment, but let's get the rest of this. Now, beginning at verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart on the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep, and he was overcame by sleep, uh, overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and fell on him, embraced him, and said to him, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And when they had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and had talked a long while, until the daybreak he departed. And they brought the young man in alive 
and they were not a little comforted. Now let's focus on that first meeting at Troas, this Lord's Day meeting at Troas, and what do we learn from that? Here's the first thing, and I mentioned verse 6 as being important. I noticed that they waited for days to worship with the saints. Now I know Paul's in a hurry. He's in a hurry because he's ready to depart on the morrow, verse 7 says. But that's not the only indication. Later when he gets, he leaves here immediately and he goes over to Miletus and he doesn't have time for the elders to come down. I mean, for him to go to the elders, he calls for them to come to him because he's in a hurry, hoping to make it to, uh, in feast time to Jerusalem. So I know Paul's in a hurry. He's got a lot of important things to do. And these are religious things that are important to do. And yet the text says, back at verse 6, that they sailed and they made it to Troas, where they stayed seven days, the text says. They stayed for a week. So they could be there for this Lord's Day assembly in verse 7. Now that says something about the importance of worship. Now, Paul's in a hurry. He can move on. And he could have said, you know what, we'll, we'll just go on and we'll worship elsewhere. But I want to be with these saints. And he stayed there for seven days, de delayed his trip, and stayed for a while so he could be at Troas. And when they came together upon the first day of the week, they began to break bread. That tells me you planned ahead where they would be for worship. Worship was important enough that they stayed for a while so they could be with these saints and worship on the Lord's Day. Now I want to put that in contrast to what often happens today. See if this is not something that's familiar. Maybe hopefully not your practice, but you are familiar with other people who do this kind of thing. For example, some don't have time to stop and worship while they're on the road. Here we are traveling, for example, on the holidays. We've got to travel. We've got to be there. We've got to go. We don't have time to stop and worship. If we have time when we get there and we get there in time, we'll worship. But we don't have time because we're busy and we have things to do. Paul was busy. He was in a hurry. The text indicates he was in a hurry. He didn't have time for some things, but he had time to wait for a day of worship. Contrast that that we see in Acts chapter 20 to those who don't even plan where they're going to be with the saints on the Lord's day. They plan a trip, maybe it's a vacation, and they don't even look to see if there's any saints there they can assemble with. And so they don't even plan on that. They don't plan of where they're going to be on the Lord's Day. Let's plan our trip out so we can be here with saints on the Lord's Day, and by the next Lord's Day we'll be at these, with these saints, but make no plans for that. Does that fit what you may practice, or you know of some Christians who do that? Contrast that with the, the, what we see in Acts 6, with those who don't bother to see if there's a church in the area. There are people who make their plans, they buy their tickets, they buy their uh, reservations, and then they get to a place, and there's not a church there. Didn't even think to check on that. Didn't even think to check, is there a group of saints that I can assemble with on the Lord's Day? You'll have to do something different. We can't assemble on the Lord's Day. We didn't make plans for that kind of thing. Or someone says, if I have to wait two or three hours to be able to assemble, that's ridiculous. I have busy plans, I've got to be on my way. See, I've got to be somewhere this evening. I've got to be somewhere in the morning. So consequently, I don't have time to wait around till they assemble. I've got to get on the road. That's not what Paul and his companions did in Acts chapter 20 and in verse 6. They stayed seven days, the text said. And you say, well, he wasn't in a hurry. Oh, yeah, he was in a hurry. The text says he was. He left the next day and didn't have time to go to Ephesus, as we're going to see a little bit later. Here's something else I'm learning from this meeting on the Lord's Day in Acts chapter 20. And that is they assembled on the first day of the week. Now let's go to verse 7, very familiar to us, perhaps more so than verse 6. 
that on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart on the next day, spoke to them and continued his speech unto midnight. There is some significance to the first day of the week. What is that significance? Well, there's several things that took place on the first day of the week. The Lord was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. Matthew 28, verse 1, the story of the resurrection, that it was on the first day of the week when they discovered the tomb was empty. The same thing was indicated in Mark 16 and in verse 9. So that's what makes this day so significant. This is the day the Lord was raised from the dead. But that's not the only thing that took place. The Lord that very day and eight days later being the next first day of the week, that he appeared to the disciples on the first day of the week. The first time the disciples saw him was on the first day of the week. That makes it a significant day. Furthermore, the church was established on the first day of the week. So you read Acts chapter 2, and you say, I don't see a reference to the first day. It was on the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost always fell on the first day of the week. They would number seven Sabbaths, making 49 days, and then adding one, the 50th Pentecost, 50th day. Consequently, it fell on the first day of the week. So when the church was established... When the gospel was preached and the first obedient people became members of the body of Christ, that was the Lord's day that took place. The first gospel sermon was preached under the Great Commission on the Lord's day. That was in Acts chapter 2. He was preached in promise earlier. This is the first time it was preached under the Great Commission. That took place on the Lord's day. What a significant day that was and is. But notice in Revelation 1 and in verse 10, John refers to this day as the Lord's day. He said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. On the Lord's day. So here is the Lord's day. This is a holy day. Holiday. That's what holiday means. It's a holy. It's a set apart, a special day. This is a holy day. This is the Lord's day. It's a day of devotion, a day of homage to the Lord. It is the Lord's day and not the Lord's hour. I think we think we make a great sacrifice if, you know, if I can gather enough uh, gumption about myself to give the Lord just a little bit of time on one particular day, maybe an hour. If I can give him that, I've really devoted a whole lot to the Lord. Go back to Revelation 1 and in verse 10. This day, the first day of the week is called the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour. Now let me illustrate. Quite simple. Let's suppose that all you have to your name is seven $1 bills. That's all you've got. You have seven dollar bills. Now, obviously, you see where we're going with that because that's how many days of the week you have, isn't it? Suppose you have seven dollars and one of those is labeled as the Lord's dollar. I'm not talking about that you give it into the treasury. I'm just talking that's the Lord's dollar. It's to be spent with reference to what the Lord wants. Suppose you only have $7. One of those is devoted as the Lord's dollar. That's what it's called, the Lord's dollar. And suppose instead of spending any large portion of that, you only spend a small portion of that. You spend a dime for the Lord. And the rest of that you keep for yourself. 90% of it you keep for yourself. But you spend a dime in service to the Lord. Can you still call that the Lord's dollar? Is that really the Lord's dollar? Not really. You haven't given much to the Lord. You see, the parallel to that is, this is the week and we have one day that's labeled as the Lord's. Now, all of them are the Lord's in one sense. But one of them is labeled as the Lord's day, a day of devotion and homage to the Lord. 
And so I decide I'm going to give a small portion of that to the Lord. But the rest of that, I'm not, I'm not willing to sacrifice more than just this little small portion. Not much then is that the Lord's day. Now, I want to suggest to you that it's often treated as any other day. It's just an ordinary work day for some Christians. I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about among Christians. It's often treated as just a normal family day, a day that I do whatever I want. That it's a day that uh, if we can manage it, we'll give a little time to the Lord, but we may not be able to manage much of that at all. Let's talk about something else at this Lord's Day meeting. I know they took time and waited so they could assemble with the saints. Secondly, they assembled on the first day of the week, but the Lord's Supper was something that was important. Let's go back to verse 7 in our text. And the text says... When the disciples came together on the first day of the week to, notice this phrase, to break bread. The term break bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper. And you say, how do you know? Well, let's see how we know that. It is a reference to the Lord's Supper. And you say, does it always mean the Lord's Supper? No. The context is going to bear that out. So let's notice a number of times where it refers to the Lord's Supper. In Matthew 26, 26, and Mark 14, 22, and Luke 22, 19. Let's group those together. What do we have in those? That when he took the bread, this is the institution of the Lord's Supper. I know he's talking about the Lord's Supper because that's the context. Now that expression break bread is not found there, but the text says he took bread and he broke it. It means they consumed the bread. That's what break bread means. They consumed the food. And so he broke the bread and he partook of that. That was the institution of the Lord's Supper. So that concept of breaking bread was used with reference to the Lord's Supper there. Let's go to another text. This was on the Lord's Day again, Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 22, on the Lord's Day, after they had obeyed the gospel, the text says at verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Those are terms descriptive of worship. They're worshiping, and it's called breaking of bread. But let's go further. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 16. 1 Corinthians 10 and in verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Obviously, that's a reference to the Lord's Supper. And he talks about breaking of bread. All right, let's go to one more. Let's go to the chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 23 and 24. That I received of the Lord, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He's breaking bread. That's a reference to the Lord's Supper. All right? But sometimes that phrase is used to refer to a common meal. It was used that way in Acts 2.46. That they broke bread from house to house. And we often do that. As we get together with someone, we go and we eat bread with them. That is, we eat a meal with them, and we break bread from house to house. So it is used with reference to a common meal. It's used with reference to the Lord's Supper. How do I know Acts 27 fits in this category, not in the other? Because in Acts 20 and verse 7, it's a worship assembly, obviously. And in 1 Corinthians 11, there is to be no common meal in the assembly. What, do you not have houses to eat and to drink in? So that tells me then that Acts 20 and verse 7 must have reference to the Lord's Supper. And that's all I'm trying to, to establish. This is the only passage in all of the New Testament that focuses on the day of the Lord's Supper. 
Now, you can find many passages that talk about the Lord's Supper. Matthew, you might find, you find something in Matthew, you find something in Mark, you find something in Luke, you find something over here in 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, chapter 11. You find now in Acts chapter 20 a reference to the Lord's Supper, Acts chapter 2. But the only reference to the day, what day that's to be done, what day we're to observe the Lord's Supper is in Acts 20 and in verse 7. You won't find any other. Now that means that we're to observe the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Every first day of the week. If not, the question is, why not? There's a parallel to the Sabbath with reference to that. Let me show you what I mean by that. In Exodus 20 and in verse 8, the Lord said, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so that means every time the Sabbath occurs, they were to keep it holy. What if they kept it holy one Sabbath, but the next Sabbath they didn't, and the next Sabbath they didn't, and then they kept the Sabbath again? Are they doing what the text says? No. They were to keep every Sabbath holy. So just as remember the Sabbath, didn't say every, but it said remember the Sabbath. The same thing with the first day of the week implies every time the first day occurs. I know they met every first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, so tells us that. These come around the Sabbath and the first day come around every week. So the observance of the Lord's Supper is to be every first day of the week. Now let's go to verse 7. There's something else I see in that text. We're just trying to stand back and observe what took place in this Lord's Day assembly of the saints at Troas. What if you were there and you were standing to the side and you saw, what are you seeing? I see that they, these, these people talk like they'd been waiting a while for this assembly. This was important to them. I'm seeing that they're telling me they are assembling on the first day of the week and it's for the Lord's Supper. But then the text tells me Paul preached to them. Look at verse 7 again. On the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his speech until midnight. This was during their worship. They've assembled for worship, and he's preaching to them. For what purpose? That he might strengthen and build their faith. And you say, how do you know that? Let's go over to when he's talking to the elders later, when he left here and went over to the elders at Ephesus. He talked to them about the very word that he'd been preaching earlier. That is the word of his grace. Look at verse 32. I commend you to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. See, the word of the grace, that is the gospel, is able to strengthen and build. So what's Paul trying to do over here in Acts chapter 20? He's trying to preach a message that builds them up. Now I want you to take note that this was not one of those short pep talks. God loves you. You're a good person. Go out and enjoy your life. That's not one of those messages. It was a message that gave ample instruction and admonition because he intends to leave the next day. There's something about that being significant. Ready to depart the next day, continued his speech until midnight. He's got somewhere to go. He's probably not going to be back. He is not expected to see these disciples again. So how do you know? When he got over to Ephesus or to Miletus and talked to the elders at Ephesus, he told them, you'll probably not see my face anymore. So he don't think he'll see them again. He's going to give them all the admonition that he can put in in a short period of time, and he continued his speech into midnight. I like what F.F. Bruce commented upon this in his commentary on Acts. He said, church meetings were not regulated by the clock in those days. And the opportunity of listening to Paul was not one to be cut short. What, it, what did it matter if he was, went on conversing with them until midnight? He is not advocating that you preach and preach and preach and preach and preach and preach. What he's suggesting is there was something to be said, there was a need, and he's not going to have that opportunity again. 
Now, what did you see if you were there at this notable meeting that you would remember for a long, long time? I didn't even mention Eutychus as we work through that. That would be notable, but that's not the most notable thing. What that did is confirm that what Paul was preaching and the things they were doing, God gave his stamp of approval to. What did you observe at this notable meeting? They waited for days to worship with the saints. It was that important to them. They assembled on the first day of the week. They observed the Lord's Supper, and Paul did some preaching that was very important. But let's shift gears now. And remember, he left Troas, and he went down to Miletus, and he called for the elders of the church at Ephesus to come. He wanted to talk to them. And let's see what happens in Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17. This is Paul's message to the Ephesian elders. What's it all about? It's encouragement and warning. Can you do both? And the same message, well, Paul did. He encourages them like they need to be encouraged, but he warns them like they need to be warned. This is the only recorded speech to Christians. I'm not saying it's the only one he ever gave, it's the only recorded one we have. We have record where Paul preached to non-Christians as he's preaching in the missionary journeys. But we don't have a recorded speech that he gave to Christians, and we have one here. He does this in the form of personal testimony. You see what I mean in just a moment. But that is simply saying, here's what I did among you. Here's how I behaved among you. Here was my goal while I was with you. He does so in the form of personal testimony. One writer said, this is a perfect photograph of his own spiritual character as a servant of Christ. And you say, I, I want to get something out of this text that helps me. Well, are you claiming to be a servant of Christ? And you say, well, yeah. Well, here is a perfect picture of a servant of Christ. And we're going to see that as it unfolds. It is a picture of what every servant of Christ ought to be. Let's see what he says. In this meeting of, with the elders of the church at, at Ephesus. Now, notice at verse 17. Let's see what happens. That from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they'd come, he said to them, and here's what he began saying. He, first of all, in 17 to 21, focuses on the past. Now, you see where we're headed. He's going to focus on the past, he's going to focus on the present, and he's going to focus on the future. He first begins by looking at the past, 17 to 21. What does he say about the past? Well, in the past, he's focusing on the consistency of his service. Not every disciple is consistent. Before we get to the text, let's get that picture in mind. Some disciples of Christ are serving Christ, and then they quit serving Christ, and then they come back to serving Christ, and then they serve Christ, and then they don't serve Christ, or they're up and down. Paul is saying, my service has been consistent. He's not bragging. He's just simply suggesting that that's the way it was, and that's the way it ought to be. You want to be a dedicated servant? Be consistent. Now notice he said, I led a consistent life. Look at verse 18. When, he came to, when they came to him, he said, you know that from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. He didn't say, you know, when I first came, I was not what I should have been, but then I, I got things on the right track, or I was on the right track, then I got off track, and I'm back on again. He said, I've, I've, from the first day, I've tried to do what was right. And you know I was consistent with reference to that. He lived the kind of life that was a consecrated servant. Look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. Serving the Lord, that is, here was the manner of life that he lived among them, verse 18. 
serving the Lord in all humility, uh, humility with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. What are you saying, Paul? I'm saying I served in humility. I didn't try to come across as, as arrogant, as being superior to you. I was trying to serve in all humility. I had compassion. There was tears. And there was endurance because of the things that happened to me. Here was the consistency of my life. And furthermore, here is the, the consecrated effort of a servant of God. I'm trying to be, I tried always to be consistent. I was humble and compassionate and enduring. Now look at verses 20 and 21. That I continued to preach the complete gospel. And all of that. And how that I kept back nothing that was helpful. That isn't there, and I'll finish those verses in a moment, but there wasn't a part of the message that would have helped you that I kept back from you. If it was something beneficial, I preached that message. I preached that part of the gospel to you. I kept back nothing that was profitable or helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught it you both publicly and from house to house. He said, what I did in my preaching and in my teaching, I, I taught you anything I thought was needful. There wasn't a part of it I sheltered you from because it might hurt your feelings or it might challenge you and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to upset you. I didn't do that. I tried to be consistent. And notice he said, I taught you publicly and from house to house. There is an occasion where you need to teach publicly everybody, but then there may be some private, in, some private exhortation that's needed. I did both of those. What else did you do, Paul? Look at verse 21. Testifying to Jews and to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. I did the kind of preaching that challenged people to make a change in their life. And I did that when I was with you. And so let's look at the past, he said. And here's what you'll notice about the past. I led a consistent life. I was a consecrated servant. And I preached the complete gospel. But now he shifts gears. Let's start at verse 22 and go to 27. His focus is on the present. And here is the consecration in his service. Here's what we're doing now. Here's what I did in the past. And you know that. Now let's talk about what's going on now. There's some things going on now concerning me, Paul, and there's some things concerning you, the elders at Ephesus. Let's talk about Paul first, because that's what he does. Look at verse 22. Concerning Paul, what does he say? There was some uncertainty about going to Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed back. Memories on his return trip. And see now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. He seems to be driving home this principle of being consecrated. I'm dedicated and devoted. Not only have I been, but I'm still that now, even with the uncertainty about going to Jerusalem. I, when I go to Jerusalem, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I get there. I don't really know what I was going to I don't know what I'm going to face. I don't know what kind of trial, what kind of circumstance I'm going to get myself in. But I'm going to Jerusalem. There is some certainty about going to Jerusalem. There is some uncertainty, verse 22. Verse 23, there is some certainty. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. That's all I know. He said, I'm not sure what's going to happen when I get to Jerusalem. I'm going there. But I do know this much. The Holy Spirit has revealed to me that when I go there, there's, there's going to be some problems. I'm going to be in chains and there's some tribulation. There's going to be persecution and there's be imprisonment. I know that much, but I don't know what else is going to happen. Well, Paul, do you think maybe you ought to back off from that? Look at verse 24. I'm determined to go anyway. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life as dear to myself. 
I'm not bothered by the fact I don't know what was going to happen. I'm not really bothered by the fact that there's change and tribulation awaiting me. I'm determined to go anyway. Because I do not count my life dear to myself. That is, there are some things more important than my life. See, we're focusing on the consecration in his service. How dedicated he is. And furthermore, look at the end of verse 24. So that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I've received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul, what, get, tell me again, why is it that you're going when you know there's going to be problems but you don't know how bad it's going to be? Tell me again about that, Paul. He said, I'm going because I want to finish my race with joy. I want to make sure that when I get to the end of my life, I've done the right thing. Secondly, I'm going to preach the gospel. And if that means I lose my life, I just lose my life. It just doesn't really matter. He's focusing on his consecration. Now, there's something about the present concerning the Ephesians. This begins at verse 25. He said, indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. He focuses on their expectation. And what you can expect is, this is the last time I'm going to be with you. And I know that's what he meant, because later he says the same, same thing at the end, at verse 38. And so he said, you're not going to see my face anymore. Concerning the present, this is, this, this is the last time you'll see me. This is the last time we'll be together. This is the last time that we'll be able to talk face to face. Now then, at verse 26 and 27, he talks about their responsibility. What does that mean? I'm not shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God. See, I've taught you. And I've preached to you the whole counsel of God. So now, if, if it's been delivered to you, the implication is, the responsibility is yours to follow that. So then he charges them beginning of verse 28. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I've taught you. So he said, look, we skip verse 26, that I testified this day to you, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. In other words, I've taught you. It's not that, that if you're not doing what you should, that you can say, well, Paul didn't teach us. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I taught the whole council. I taught you exactly what you need to do. And so if you don't do that, the burden is upon you. You're not going to see me anymore. But the responsibility is yours to do what I've taught you. So he's focusing on the past, the present, and then he shifts gears and he focuses on the future. Concerns in his service. He'd been consistent in the past. He's consecrated now. He has concerns for the future. So there's several things that he does in this context, beginning at verse 28. First of all, there's the exhortation he gives them. To take heed to themselves and to the flock. Look at verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. What about the future? Paul, I understand your past and I understand what you're saying about yourself and us in the present. What are you saying about the future? What I'm saying is, here's my exhortation to you. Take heed to yourself. Pay close attention to yourself and to the flock that you oversee. And shepherd and feed the flock of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. The implication is, this is not just people. This is people that have been purchased by the blood. A precious price has been paid for them, so you take care of them. What a weighty responsibility. But he's not through. Look at 29 and 30. There's the explanation that he gives. There's exhortation, then there's an explanation. Why do you need to take heed to the flock of God? Because apostasy is coming. 
For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, wait a minute. You told us to take heed to ourselves and to the flock. Yeah, that's what I told you. Why did you tell us that? Because there's danger coming. After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also among your own selves within the church. Perhaps within the eldership. Will men arise speaking perverse things and draw away disciples after themselves. You see, danger is not always on the outside. Sometimes the danger is within. Sometimes when we, we, we bring up the subject of error, and error being taught, we look around and say, well, that's talking about the world, or maybe that's talking about the denominational concept, when maybe the error is rising up right in our midst. Right in our midst. Sometimes within the eldership. Sometimes from the preachers. The, el- the, the error is rising up. Well, then he gives some encouragement. There's exhortation, take heed to yourselves. There's the explanation, apostasy is coming. Then there is the encouragement that he gives them. What do they need to do? They need to watch and heed the warning and turn to the word. Let's get that in verses 20, or 30 and 31. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. You see, when I was with you and I labored with you and I stayed with you for those three years, I was warning you night and day. Meaning publicly he had done that? Privately, from house to house he had warned them. I've been telling you about this for a long time. I've been warning you for a while about this. So what you need to do is be watchful. Keep your eye open. Be alerted to danger. Be alerted to uncertain sounds rising up. You need to watch. You need to heed the warnings that I gave you. And then thirdly, look at verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. You might underline the word of His grace. You see, the word of God is the word that comes from His grace. The grace of God teaches all men, Titus chapter 2. You see, this instruction you have is by the grace of God. Somebody said, I want, I want some grace. Got a copy of the Bible? Got your New Testament? You've got grace right here. This is not all that's involved, but this is grace. Any instruction from the Word is the grace of God. So he said, I commend you to the Word of His grace. His warnings are part of grace. His encouragement is a part of grace. I commend you to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up. It's able to do two things. When you go to the Word of God, it's going to make you stronger and ultimately give you an inheritance among the saints. But then he turns and he talks about an example. His own example of sincere care. Notice at verse 33. He said, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. In other words, when I was working among you and even now, I wasn't coveting men's uh, what what. Other people had. Yes, of your, your own selves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. In other words, I worked. I wasn't working as an evangelist among you so that I could get money. That wasn't my goal. I was working to try to do, do something. What are you trying to do? I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you might support the weak, that you must support the weak, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now you say, what does all that have to do about giving and and it's better to give than to receive with what he just said he had done. I've not coveted any man's silver and gold. He's saying, I'm an example of sincere care. I sincerely cared about you. 
And I'm encouraging you to have sincere care for one another. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And then he ends with this. And I call this expression an expression of love and appreciation. Notice beginning in verse 36. Now, remember I said there's some notable meetings and there, there have been times you've been with people and you may not remember that, but there's going to be some times you, you, you will never forget that. If you were an eyewitness to this, I guarantee you'd remember this for years and years to come. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept freely, openly, audibly, and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words that he had spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. There was the expression of love they had for one another and the appreciation they had for Paul. And his appreciation for them. They wept openly and audibly. Now what did you see in that? What I see in this meeting is he focused on the past. My consistent service as, as a servant of the Lord. What about the present? He said, I'm consecrated now. And I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem. I, and I don't know what the future holds. But, but I do know this. That I'm going now. And what about you? Well, he said, you're not going to see me anymore. This is the last we'll see each other. And furthermore, you have the responsibility to, to listen and take heed to what you've been taught. I've taught you fully. I'm innocent. And then he turns and said, let's focus on the future. What you need to do is take heed to yourself and to the flock because there's an apostasy coming. So what I encourage you to do is to watch and take heed and turn to the word and look at the example I've set before you and you do the same thing of sincere care and then there was this expression of love and appreciation they have for one another. That would have been a meeting that you would never forget. I think if you were in either one of these meetings, there was a Lord's Day meeting, worship service. That was a notable, unforgettable meeting. And then there was this meeting with the elders that had to be unforgettable if you'd been present for either one of those. Two notable meetings, many practical lessons. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?